You're listening to Ecotones Now. We're a 100% independent, volunteer-run podcast companion to the award-winning site Environmental History Now, a platform to showcase the work and expertise of graduate students and early career scholars who identify as women, trans, and or non-binary people. I'm Emma Mosswild. I'm Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson. And we're your hosts for this season, Our Community's Voices. This week, we are thrilled to share the season finale of the first season of Ecotones Now with a conversation between Environmental History Now's executive team and our podcast team, and we really hope that you enjoy. Thank you all so much for being here. Why don't we start by introducing ourselves? I am Emma Mosswild. I'm the Outreach Coordinator for Environmental History Now, and I'm also a PhD candidate in environmental history at Georgetown University. Hi, I'm Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson. I'm a co-producer of Environmental History Now's podcast, Ecotones Now. I recently received my master's degree from the University of Oklahoma in history, um, and I'm currently tutoring K through 12 and looking for a job. I'll, I'll go next then. Uh, my name is Elizabeth Ametemon, and I'm the founder and executive editor of EHN. And I obtained my PhD in history from Boston University earlier this year. I can go next. Um, I'm Ramya. Um, I am EHN's assistant executive editor and the series editor for Tools to Change. Uh, I recently survived my PhD uh, at Michigan State, and I'm currently an assistant professor at Grand Valley State um, in rural Michigan. Okay, I'm Diana Valencia Duarte. I used to be a content editor for two years for Environment History Now, and now I am contributing as an assistant executive editor. I was recently awarded a PhD in history from the University of Exeter in the UK. And I am also currently a postdoc in the University of Bristol. So I was thinking we could share some of the highlights of the past year, uh, highlights for EHN, highlights personally or professionally, if you wanna share them. Um, but also to update our listeners on uh, some of the exciting things that have taken place over the past year. Yes, I like the thing. First thing, one of the first things that come to mind is winning the Public Outreach Project Awards from the American Society for Environmental History. Um, and it definitely stands out. Because very proud of this recognition. And of course, also especially grateful to our contributors who have been willing to share their work on EHN and to all of those who have supported this space. Uh, because 
if that was not the case, we would have we would not have won this award, of course. Um, yeah. And also, and also, I this podcast has been an amazing development for sure, and it's so cool that uh, both you, Emma, and uh, Natalie. Uh, took the idea and just kind of ran with it and turned it into something meaningful and purposeful. And I'm also just very grateful to both of you for that. Yeah, that's so sweet. Yeah, it's been it's been really fun. I um, it's been like something that I look forward to doing. Um, kind of something to get me out of my out of the normal way that I spend my time um doing dissertation research um so it's been really fun I was going to say about ASEH didn't you also get ASEH mugs as like an award we got <laughs> so I was not able to um go to Eugene because there was just too big of a trip for just a couple of days I'm uh, based in Berlin so it would just be too much time commitment too much money and all of that stuff um so emily webster who is um a review editor for ehn who has helped helped me uh helped us from since i think she started around the same time that diana also started helping out um but she was there in eugene and accepted the award on behalf of ehn and because we were we were supposed to get this plaque, but um, that was going to send be sent directly to me. But in order for Emily to still like have something tangible, uh, they gave a mug <laughs> with the logo on it. So that's there's just one mug that is somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I I I I think Emily has it, but I'm not even sure. I hope and she does. And she and she's living in Ireland right now. Um, so I don't know if if this mug survived the big move or not. We'll have to check in with Emily. Please stay tuned, <laughs> listeners. So we'll we'll know the fate of the mug. Um, but I did get the plaque, which is which was a nice. Um, how do you say that? Like a nice uh, thing. <laughs> is it on the wall or something? It's. Uh, like on a cabinet thing. Yeah, so, lovely. Yeah. Why not? Oh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. We love we love a plaque. We love an award. Um. Yeah, it was really cool. I was at ASEH in Eugene, and it was really fun to see EHN get this public recognition in um you know this major conference, um, in the field, and you know, watch everybody applaud and watch it, um, Emily go up there and, and get the award. And um, it was, I think it was uh, around the same time as the Women Envi in Environmental History Reception, which was also at ASEH, that those two things are sort of like linked in my mind. And it just, it made me really proud and excited to be at the conference. Um, it was really, really fun. For those of us who don't know or kind of new, what could you just say what necessarily this award is? Sort of what does it represent? What it means? The Public Outreach Project Award. 
um, basically recognizes excellence in public humanities and environmental history and is presented and this award is presented every two years to an environmental history project that engages the public. And this is, um, uh, so people nominate projects for this award. And I did not nominate EHN. Uh, so, so I am still very curious who did. <laughs> if somebody knows, let me know. <laughs> I'm still very curious. <laughs> but it means so much more when like an award comes from, you know, your peers. Rather than some, I don't know, I feel like some chosen group of three judges or something. That's true. But I, I still there was, I think there's still like this committee who made the decision in the end from all the nominations. But I'm I'm just curious who nominated EHN in the first place. If you're listening right now, come forth. <laughs> and thank you. <laughs> we'll send you the mug. <laughs> oh, the mug. Um, the other thing that I think is, um, maybe Ramya and Diana, you can speak to this, is the creation of the, um, what is it, assistant? um executive editor position is that vice editor um your exact title and sort of the changing um changing positions um in ehn and and uh, what projects you're doing in those capacities it's a fancy title <laughs> <laughs> assistant executive uh, um editor um well, it was time to move on because I've been as I've been content editor like for two years. I was very comfortable, so Elizabeth just took me out of my comfort zone, really, <laughs> which is great. Um, but I still I really like the position of content editor because uh, you have the opportunity to be the first person uh, in dialogue with, with every piece. And they've become so great. I mean, I was just thinking, if, if you think about achievements this year, I think that we're getting so good at this, you know, like the quality of posts that I've seen lately in environmental history now it, are really good, are really, really good. Um, so I really like that, 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 that position. But um, I thought it, this is a great opportunity to move on and uh, be more in the back office, like in the backstage, in the in the, in the management position, and to to um, it's gonna sound awful. Like use this to learn new skills. Um, as always, environmental history now to me has been a great opportunity to develop new skills. A writer, as a peer reviewer, and now doing all this, this this management stuff like reaching to people and forcing emails and people like that and and um following the, what needs to be happening every month um this is what we do <laughs> uh very happy we're also now now more like a team in the in the, in the management of the blog but also thinking of what do we want to go now as a community and, and 
been this huge um, worldwide community as big as we are right now. What else can we do with the environmental history now? Like, like trying to reach probably new funding to do some, uh, I don't know, ethnography with our own <laughs> archives or something like that. We're still dreaming about what to do, but um, it's nice because we also get together and brainstorm what, what, what else can we do and, and uh, how do we see ourselves in the future. Um, so I don't know if, if, if Rami has a different perspective on that, but a, a bit more eloquent and less all over the place. <laughs> I was going to say that I just, like, I just got lucky. I was asked and I um, decided to not say no, which is a good thing. Um, and yeah, I I sound smarter than I am. Um, so thank you um, with, with the title. Um, but uh, I think as somebody who sort of read um, and followed EHN as best as I can um, over the last three years, um, I I thought the opportunity to actually contribute to thinking about uh, future directions um, was something I shouldn't pass up. Um, and it just like fell into my lap, like I said. Um, so I just kind of said, yeah, let's do it. Um, but it has been uh, immensely fulfilling. I, I, I should preface this by saying this semester has been insane because I just started a job um, and I have no idea where time has gone. Like time is simultaneously meaningless and very meaningful at the same time. And it's annoying. Um, but so, yeah, so in, in the middle of all this madness, it's been really great to be able to exchange ideas, think about um, things EHN might be interested in doing. Um, even trying to be a part of the podcast, even though I'm leaving, leaving most of it to Emma. Um, but yeah, uh, so it's been great. Um, and I'm grateful uh, to be a part of this team. Maybe just to add to that of like why um, Ramya and Diana are now basically the assistant executive editors. And it's like, it's been one of my goals for a long time to make EHN, let's say, less dependent on my personal involvement um, so that the platform can continue to grow and thrive for you know years to come and in order to help make that happen um, Romya and Diana are now the assistant executive editors and then hopefully they will then divide the workload a little better um, especially when you know life happens and things get busy um and it's been really great to like uh diana and ramya both just said to you know brainstorm about 12 things we would like to do at one point and we even came up with an let's say really cool ambitious plan recently <laughs> um but at the and then it's really nice to just have like more people to bounce off ideas from and that's really cool so we're just taking it one step at a time will you be sharing some of this ambitious plan with us today 
Well, of course, I'm not going to <laughs> dive into it too deeply just yet. <laughs> but it's basically, I would say, it revolves around a sort of interactive tool to map the role of place in our scholarship and our lives. And we're, I think we're going to need some funding for this in order to make it happen. Um, mm -hmm. So we're trying, we're trying to, you know, figure this out on the, what the next steps would be to make this happen. So cool. It's so exciting um, to see kind of this next, um, this next chapter um, but also, I don't know, this next chapter, whatever. Um, but it's exciting to to hear about these new, um, what am I trying to say? It's exciting to hear about these new directions. Um, but I think what's really cool too is that it feels very true to EHN, like focusing on place and being really collaborative and really community focused. Um, so it feels really authentic sort of like this natural um natural next step which i think is is the mark of a good step right um but it's it's so exciting i think for for all three of you well i'm happy to hear that <laughs> you think it's it that it makes sense you know and it's with all with everything that you know that we're trying to do with ehn that i wanted to still like that it aligns with kind of like this ethos that we have. And I think as as long as that is still remains true, we can do so many things, of course, and expand in different ways. Yeah. I wonder if just um because as we launch the podcast, um, there might be people finding this podcast who haven't actually been to the site. If you could talk a little bit about like what um, you all think the ethos is of EHN right now, sort of where you see it going, not to put anybody on the spot because I didn't, I, this has just occurred to me, but um, yeah, what, like, what do you think that ethos is or what parts of that ethos are you really excited about kind of bringing forward? Well, I will talk about, I, I will, I will begin with what I think it is now, and then maybe you all can add to that. <laughs> um, so I say that EHN uh, features the environmental related work and expertise from graduate students and early career scholars who identify women, trans and or non-binary people from around the world in different languages and representing work from various fields. And really my hope is that EHN serves as kind of this multifaceted snapshot of what environmental history is and can be as experienced by this group of scholars working in and around the field at large. And definitely, also thinking about um, connection and community in the process. That's a cool, that's so nice. <laughs> Sorry, Emma. Yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. I go was ahead. just gonna say it's very, um, you know, it's very like meta and self-reflective. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just thinking about that. <laughs> 
No, but I feel like PhN yeah. is also just a space where it's not only about research, but it's also just about maybe being reflective about why we chose to do a PhD in the first place and then, and like what that entails and all these things that are not talked about in a PhD program and are just assumed um, and just talk about like personal maybe struggles and, and kind of to show that you're not alone um, and there's so many people that are feeling lost or lonely or overwhelmed um, and that you're just not alone in that and I think that those are just topics that need to be talked about more of in academic circles. I was just about mention about to mention that that many of us use environmental history now also to to speak out loud about things that we don't usually write down in other spaces or talk about in other spaces in the academia, which is I don't know. It's it's not not just fun, or and then and finds a lot of solidarity among our community. Um, also, we throw a lot of ideas that are still not completely ready and hundred percent rigorous or whatever, but new ideas and things that we're working on our minds and we need to express it and communicate them somehow to make sense of those. So. It's really nice that we can have a, a blog or a panel or a space like this to talk about that with all the peers in, in the field and um, start to walk that out to, to evolve those ideas. But we're ahead probably of what's in journals or whatever, because this is new. This, this is what we just came with. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's great that, that we can use environmental history now to to hmm. say things we cannot say in other spaces. That's, Do you think in that way, um, environmental history now, you know, the podcast, the blog itself, um, serves a community bigger than the academic circles themselves, right? Like, um, like obviously maybe people interested in entering that sort of career in that path, but also like, you know, friends and family, like, who are near people in these areas who don't understand what the heck it is that you do all day, um, or, like, what these experiences are about, or what this kind of work is, you know, I, you know, my dad has always been, you know, during this whole process saying to me, well, you can't go to school forever, right, and, like, trying to explain to someone outside of it like what it what it is and what the experience is i feel like this is a really good tool for that yeah i think it's um i like what diana is was saying about um sort of a place to um ehn is a place to practice or develop skills and i think ehn is a place to um sort of flex a lot of muscles of um self-reflection and writing for a broader audience and talking about why different kinds of scholarship or different kinds of thinking matter in a way that isn't um an integral part of 
academic publishing. Um, and so I think in that sense, it's partially a careerist um, way to like develop new skills and um, do different kinds of work. But I think it's also really intellectually nourishing to just be able to do that in a different in a different way and to really foster conscious reflection um, because that is not not something that happens in a lot of other um, more kind of traditionally academic avenues. I think what strikes me a lot also about EHN is the is a community aspect. I mean, there are lots of places you could write um, a piece based on your research. Um, but I'm not sure there are many other places where you find and feel um, a great sense of camaraderie in just sort of putting yourself up. Um, I think there are very few places that foster um, genuine conversation. Um, so I think that is something we don't um, we don't think of often in academia as being valuable, um, but it is extremely valuable, um, especially for environmental historians. Um, yeah, yeah, and speaking as outreach um, coordinator, and um, I know there are potentially exciting things on the horizon to continue to foster that sense of community, especially as folks um, defend their dissertations and the community kind of shifts um, or expands in terms of where people are um, and what kind of work that they're doing and figuring out how we as a community can support one another in different ways. Um, so I think, I think you're absolutely right, Ramya, that that's um, a unique thing about EHN that it's baked into the model that this community exists. Um, and it's a nice, um, for so many ways, for so many reasons and in so many different ways, um, I think it's nice to know that that's there for, for me and I hope for a lot of other people too. Yeah, I, I think that for some time we've been dreaming about uh, developing a mentorship scheme in, in our community. I think it's a great idea. Um, and then we definitely need to see it through. Um, an idea that, that we were dreaming with when, when we talk about this tool and new funding is um, trying to connect the dots between our posts and, and, and between us of uh, common interest and see how we can strengthen those bonds between us uh, using those common interests somehow. Um, but yeah, we're going to see <laughs> this happening in the future. I'm pretty sure of it. Um, yeah, that's definitely something that I would love to expand on. And uh, Lindsay, uh, Lindsay Marshall, who is EHN's community coordinator <laughs> has been tr has been trying to work on this like mentoring program that's hopefully you know fingers crossed can be launched in the next couple of months. Um, 
And then this program will then, you know, focus on connecting contributors who are looking for things like, I don't know, career coaching or just support or collaboration opportunities or just better community connection. Um, and I think it would be wonderful to kind of focus on that community aspect more than we have than more than we have done so far. This, I'm I'm pausing because I'm taking notes on like potential ideas. Um, because as we're talking, I'm thinking more about like how we can really continue to foster community in a way that feels really also really inclusive. Um, I love what you were saying, Elizabeth, about the um uh this is EHN is for folks all over the world, um, and that we publish in multiple languages and that we um this isn't just um like a North American or a Western hemisphere or a global north focused um entity that really the project is about creating global community, which I think people make a lot of noise about and it's hard. It's very hard, yes. <laughs> but it's so important at the same time. So you need to you need to put in the effort and the time and in order to make it happen and not yeah. quote unquote take the easy way out and just focus on let's say you on the US. Yeah. 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 I'm really I'm really hoping um that there can continue to be a trend of scholarship in multiple languages. Yes, for sure. Um, so if you're if you're listening and you've been thinking, oh man. I would love to write something, but I'd really, I think for whatever reason, this would um, work better in a language that's not English. We would love to, uh, I'm not a content editor. I'm no, 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 it. but 100%, oh, but, we, I would, yeah. we would love to publish more content in languages other than English. Um, it's, it's something that Diana has done in the past too, actually. Um, and I certainly realize that perhaps the assumption is that all pieces submitted and posted to EHN must be in English, but this is definitely not the case. There's a whole thing about, you know, you know, thought being formed by language, language often shaping and is part of one's identity. And I know that's true for me being raised bilingually and for many others too. Um, mm -hmm. And this, yeah, this language is just an. I I think with Diana Alamia, we recently had a whole conversation about this too. <laughs> like for example, like the certain key concepts that are important to one's work often do not have a direct English equivalent, and our practice is now just to keep that term because and not use italics because I feel that kind of indicates otherness or estrangement yeah. in English so we stopped italicizing such terms um of course you know the dominance of English in academia is there and it's not going anywhere but in just a very 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 small bit we can push back against that and you know the EHN community is made of contributors whose primary language is Spanish or Portuguese, uh, French, Dutch, 
Mandarin, Hungarian, whatever. And we started, I don't know, and I think it was two years ago to publish content in these languages as well, but would so love to do that more. And kind of just normalizing academic and public scholarship in many languages as well, even if it's just in a very small way. Yeah. Yeah, we could do some data mining or something. Artificial intelligence go through our whole website, uh, looking through our posts, even in some post in English, we have introduced a lot of concepts in other languages. Because I've noticed that many of us feel that need that, yeah, to, they need to express some ideas and concepts that just don't exist in English. So we use different terms and they're there. They're there, yes. We, we have them <laughs> our, in our website. We haven't just made more noise about that. So so part of, of the tool that, that we've been talking about has been dreaming about a multilingual environmental history where we can kind of uh, make sense of those terms and those concepts um, that, and, and make something with them. Um, but, but particularly, I've, I've always remembered the, the Querencia one, for example, uh, and um, among our contributors, we have many uh, either indigenous or indigenous descent and um, contributors and and decolonial practitioners. So we're continuously dealing with this um, discussion about bilingualism and and about uh, different ways and systems of knowledge and and finds and uh, forms to see the world and building knowledge. Um, so we definitely need to find a way to, to incorporate all that, that diversity and richness uh, into our, our discussions and environmental history now more often. Um, I know that that was all over the place again, but, <laughs> um, but it's definitely that we're doing, something that we're doing. Um, not with just bilingual cost, uh, or not just with, with posts in different languages, but also uh, introducing that bilingualism within our posts. Uh, yeah, and I like, I think that reflects what Elizabeth was talking about with not um, kind of making, uh, actively combating senses of estrangement um, between languages and, and concepts. Um, and so I think the bilingualism there um, definitely contributes to to combating that. Yeah, I like the idea the idea of language though is it's it's interesting. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this when we spoke, but I recently discovered that um, my three and a half year old code switches uh, from speaking in like whatever version of English I speak in, which is not. <laughs> Indian, but I definitely don't put on an American accent. Um, to speaking in an American accent in school. Um, and so it's, and I didn't realize that my kid code switches so seamlessly at three and a half. Um, because the only rule I have in my house is that we don't say Z, we say Z. Whereas Z house, we will always be a Z house. 
Um, and so, but I didn't realize that sort of saying Z would mean that this kid would code switch between speaking like a Michigander um, in school um, and then trying to speak whatever like dialect of English I speak. Um, and it took me a while to realize that, that they code switch and it made me like, I've been thinking a lot about communicating in English and especially a place like EHN, um, what it means to, to like, the way websites are run, the way blogs are run, you need style sheets, right? Like you need to to have some way to streamline uh, communication techniques. Um, but on the other hand, um, we all think, we may all speak English, but we all think in speaking English so differently that like how, how or if and how should uh, a blog or a, or a website think about accommodating these, right? Because um, I have a, when I'm writing, so as somebody who grew up in India, my brain writes in a circular manner. Um, it, it's full of passive voice. Um, and one of the things that I've had to really try in the last 10 years that I've been here is to sort of write an active voice, yada, yada. Um, and I think it reflects a lot in the personalities um, of the people who write like this um, and think like this. Um, but without going into that tangent, um, I have like been thinking about how accommodating and sort of truly including different ways of writing and thinking might change what a website looks like, right? Like in my own writing, I have to constantly preface saying, I will use British spellings. I'm not going to use American spellings, right? Um, or if I am using American spellings, like I did in my dissertation, I have to preface it by saying, wherever needed, I will use British spellings. I'm not going to change it. It's not incorrect. Um, because everyone from Microsoft Word to like committee members think it's incorrect. Um, so, so yeah, so there's this, it's just something like, just a thought that I keep having of like, how do you create a space that is, that includes different ways of thinking and communicating um, without necessarily breaking style sheets mm -hmm. and legibility. When I, when I started in, in environmental history now, like, like writing a blog in English, um it helped me to curate my english somehow um but now i'm i'm thinking of it in reverse like environmental history now has has grown and mature in a way that we can actually use it to bend the rules and make more close to what we are and the way we think in our natural in an, in our mother tongue um and, and probably feel less awkward and embarrassed about that. <laughs> I don't know. I've been struggling a lot lately and thinking, also reflecting a lot lately about um, accents or that that struggle mm -hmm. to um, communicate and construct words. And is that thing about being non-native that usually feel a bit embarrassed about? But it's in itself that struggle. A form of resistance and uh, and uh, I don't know uh, uh, a testimony of of uh, how 
um, academics from the global south do need to make our way into Anglo-Center, Neurocenter academia. Um, so if we if we could do the opposite, like take the English language and, and pulling it for us and, and and probably throw it apart and and uh, and be more uh, bold about using our own words and concepts. Um, ESN is like the perfect space to do that because you can't do that in other, in other places I guess um, you know <laughs> yeah. I like that I like the idea of breaking and bending um, it also makes me think a little more about um, idea of being a native speaker because who is a native speaker I mean I, I was colonized you know my people have been colonized one my, my people problematic but whatever and uh, the subcontinent was colonized for 400 years if I am not a native speaker how can any American white American be a native speaker so no this idea of like who is a native speaker and what is like if 1.3 billion people say spell honor with a U, you will think spell it with a U. It's just that. I don't care what 300 million of you do. Um, so anyway, this idea of native and what is native and who gets to be native, um, I think needs to push back on uh, because people living on a little island um, in the Atlantic uh, who colonized the world or people living in a bigger island uh, across the Atlantic um, shouldn't get to decide what English is. Um, or what a native English speaker sounds and looks like. Um, anyway, my rant aside. But I like the idea of, of bending and breaking because I think it's important. It's one of the most important lessons I learned when it came to coding. Um, I think we need to learn to recode English also. Just break it a little. Might be nice. Would it be an idea then to write a piece that is this mixture of your languages yeah that might be nice i mean i i've realized that you know there's there's a there's a great deal of comfort in reading um reading pieces or or literature written in a way that your brain understands the language right um because what's lacking in in making normative this idea of active voice or however americans speak not north americans because canadians are different um making this sort of idea of, of American English normative is that you lose your sense of self. And in allowing EHN to like produce a piece or even a series of uh, pieces by scholars of from um, the, the global South um, would be giving voice and credence to that way of thinking and communicating. Um, and I, for someone like me, I would feel like I finally have a voice that people want to listen and and a voice that I can read and understand without having to constantly think. I feel like this conversation also extends to, I think it's called AAE, African-American English. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like that, you know, like a really good case for, um, for just changing um, English's formal, like academic writing in classrooms in general as well. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even just because like 
I don't know, the book I read on it um, other, uh, called Other People's English is just talking about, you know, when you look at AAE, there's a lot of advancements in the English language mm-hmm. um, that just benefit speech in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, like that's a really interesting involvement the English language that I would I would be really like interested to see take hold in, in academic writing. Yeah, and, and the the question then is also what is academic writing and why is it so stuffy? Like mm. can we please throw the old white men out of academia, Jesus Christ. Um <laughs> but like why why is academic language stuffy and why do you have to be stuffy to be an academic. I'm an academic. I don't think I'm stuffy. But also you have to fit this box. Exactly. Right? Yeah, a box which none of us were in. You know, we we didn't design the box. We're not in the box. No. and But the box keeps trying to find us. Um, <laughs> And so, like, why is academic? And then you're, you kind of have to work with it, but at the same time, you really exactly. don't want to. <laughs> And then you're kind of just stuck in the middle in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, I guess like it's also a question to ask then, like how, why is there like a, a formal or sort of stuffy, archaic way of communication that it, it becomes more a gatekeeping exercise, right? Like language becomes a gatekeeping exercise. Um, and I think of, and and one of sort of yeah. my na- my other native languages, we have like a fo- like a the way we speak, which is you know many many dialects, and there is a way of there's a way of writing which is extremely formal, um, because again it's a gatekeeping exercise. You write so formally because most people don't have access to actually um, learning how to read, right? Mm. And only some people can be trained in sort of writing in that flowery, um, extremely obtuse way of writing. Um, And so why does English, um, and I can say this only about English because I don't communicate in in more than two languages really. Um, Why does it have to fulfill this gatekeeping function? I mean, it colonized half the world, if not more. So why does it have to be such a gatekeeper? Um, and what about academic English is so special that it need like if we need to use these big bombastic words that nobody understands, then maybe that's a problem because if the future of knowledge is is truly public, then we need to get away from this desire to use these big words. Mm. Um, and if knowledge is not public, then there's no point to our PhDs and there's no real point to doing it. like the universities then might as well close up and shut shop today. Um, if you're not going to get people interested and you can't get them interested by using big words, that's... But, so can we just like, I think that's one of the greatest um, values of, of a space like EHN is, is you know, one, one is camaraderie, but the other is also allowing a space for people to communicate in ways that they're comfortable without necessarily um, taking away from the seriousness and importance of what they're communicating right um and putting an emphasis on communication not like 
making yourself sound smart to you. What are you, three? Um, but like, so. Well, right, like that's like the point of like having a, a platform mm -hmm. for communities that weren't included in the standard academic box, right? Because as those platforms become more legitimate, um, it starts to push that box boundaries out just a little bit more. And I think, you know, I think what we're all hearing and, and wanting is just for that box to kind of, rather than evolve so dreadfully slowly, is just break already. Mm -hmm. So let's just carry the hammer and break the damn thing. That's all I'm saying. There we go. Either. I was gonna I was gonna say I was gonna I was gonna sort of wrap up um and ask a question about what's next for EHN but I think the clear answer is carry the hammer and break mm -hmm. the damn thing and maybe that is a good a good motto I love that motto here and that on the t-shirt in yes. a community oriented yes. way but <laughs> Passion and love together. So the hammer, not the mug. <laughs> oh my god! So I, I, I just thought that we forgot to mention that uh, this year we also um, had a new logo. That is really amazing. So thank you to whoever designed that because <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> oh yeah! Yes, we had a we had a facelift on the website. We did. <laughs> In conjunction with the podcast launch. It's also something, you know, there's so many things on the list, you know, and then mm. there's so many things on the list I would like to do, but then just because of everything else, it never really happened. Um, but it was nice to put things, some things in motion this year that has been, that have been on that list for a long time. <laughs> well it's like with that uh like mentoring platform and like with with Ramya and Diana being assistant executive editors now uh we're trying to like really focus on perhaps finding grants for EHN which would be amazing um so you know baby steps because it is like like you all and the rest of the EHN team they continue to invest their time and energy into this space on an all-volunteer basis. And I certainly hope that we will be able to provide each team member with some, some form of financial compensation and even maybe every contributor who, publish a piece of, who publishes a piece of EHN. And it's a big one, obviously, but, you know, maybe putting it out into the world will be a small step towards making it happen. Um, but, you know, baby steps again. And I'm glad to have Ramya and Diana helping me with that. We're happy to help. Yeah, I think good things are happening. Yeah. I mean, I'm not chuffed about the snow we're going to get, but you know, I've complained about that on Twitter something. <laughs> I um it's been so fun to like chat and um talk about the past year and some things that are coming up and 
um, to close out the first season of the podcast with this great conversation. So I, um, I think we'll definitely do this again because it was so delightful, um, at least for me. Um, but thank you all so much for making the time and for um, speaking so honestly and wonderfully about the work that EHN is doing. And we'll talk to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for everything. <laughs> Bye. so much for listening to this first season of ecotones now we will be back in the spring and in the meantime you can check out our website envhistnow.com and we'll see you very soon this show is produced and edited by emma mosswild and natalie joe rose wilkinson with music provided by natalie joe rose wilkinson and christine murphy special thanks to elizabeth hemateman to this season's contributors, and to you for listening.
You can also follow us on Twitter at ENVHIST now. We'll see you soon with more Community Voices. This show is produced and edited by Emma Mosswild and Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson, with music provided by Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson and Christine Murphy. Special thanks to Elizabeth Hemateman, to this season's contributors, and to you for listening. <laughs>